Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Listen to this passage of Scripture. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these words of Scripture this morning, help us to put ourselves in that place. And to think about our own relationship to you and what it would have been like to see you riding into Jerusalem that morning. How would we have responded? What would we have done and said? Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Fresh, new, help us to hear these words as if they were for the very first time. We ask it in Jesus' name. A few weeks ago, uh, Gail and I drove down to Cottage Grove to see her parents. It's a drive we've made many times. It's about an hour from here as we go south through St. Paul and then just south of the cities. And sometimes when you do a drive that's familiar to you, you can kind of be complacent about maybe what's going on around you or what you see outside the window. But on this particular day, there was something different that was happening. It was one of those days when late winter gives way to spring. The sun was shining brightly. The uh, uh, temperature had jumped up in the afternoon. And you could just feel a change in the air. And I think even the uh, birds noticed that as well. Because as we were driving back that afternoon, uh, when we were driving along the Mississippi River there, you know, an eagle flew overhead. And then we saw some hawks that were out. And then by the side of the road in a wooded area in St. Paul, there were this flock of turkeys. I don't know, eight, ten, maybe a dozen turkeys that were there as well. And then a little later down the road, two pheasants ran across the road in front of us. 
it seemed like all of these birds were aware of what was happening as well and were out in force that day as there was a change that was in the air. And I think about that when I come to a passage like this as well. It's a familiar one. It's one that we have heard many times. You've read it before. You're familiar with it. And yet whenever we read it and we think about what is going on there, there was a change in the air as well. There was an excitement that these disciples who were with Jesus felt that day when they were coming toward Jerusalem. Something very significant was about to happen. They didn't understand all of it. They had some thoughts about what they hoped was going to take place, but the week would turn out to be very different than what they had thought. This is a passage that's packed with spiritual significance. The way Jesus entered into Jerusalem that day uh, is a major statement about God's plan of salvation and the kind of king that Jesus would be. Jesus was coming that day not as this conquering king on a war horse entering into the city, but he comes riding this beast of burden, a donkey, a, a colt of a donkey even. As he comes into the city, he knows what lies ahead. He knows what he has come to do as he will lay down his life for our sins. And here for the first time in his public ministry, he chooses to reveal to the world that he is God's Son, the Messiah. I mean, so many times in his ministry before he had told the disciples to keep quiet or those that he had healed, he would say, go and say nothing or keep this quiet because it was not the time for the world to know who he was. And now he comes into Jerusalem boldly in fulfillment of the Scriptures proclaiming that he is God's Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So what is he saying to us today? And what is the Scripture asking us to do? You know, the authors of Scripture who wrote this, like Luke in this passage, want to engage us they don't want us to idly stand by as sort of spectators looking at this from a distance. They want to draw us in so that we too are looking at the circumstances and feel the sights and the sounds and the smells, if you will, of what was taking place that day because they want us to make our decision as well. Who do you believe that Jesus is? And what has He come to do? There are two things that I believe that this passage is calling for in us. And the first one is this, that it is calling us to trust in His sovereignty. To trust in His sovereignty that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For three years Jesus had taught and ministered, mostly in the region of Galilee, but also in Jerusalem. And now the time has come to finish the work that the Father had sent him to do. He would say in Luke's Gospel in 1910 that he came to seek and to save that which was lost in the house of Israel. But he also came, he said in Matthew's Gospel, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now that time had come. And so on this day, Jesus was going to Jerusalem along with thousands of other Jews to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. It is one of three annual feasts that every Jewish male is required to attend. 
And so from all over Israel, again, thousands and hundreds of thousands even of Jews would make their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. If you were coming from the north, from the region of the Galilee, the normal way that most people went was they would go over to the Jordan River Valley and follow the Jordan River down to a place called Jericho. Jericho was an oasis just east of Jerusalem. There it was lush with springs that flowed and it had dates and figs and palm trees and it was this beautiful oasis before you would enter into the wilderness. And the route that you would take from Jericho going up to Jerusalem was hard and it was difficult. Uh, It was a uh, wilderness area that you were going to pass through about 15 miles And you would go from an elevation of around 1,200 feet below sea level, from the Dead Sea area, which is the lowest point on earth. And you would make your way up toward Jerusalem, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so here is this rise of 4,000 feet through this barren wilderness that is hot and dry and it is dusty. You are going from the east to the west. You are going from the wilderness now into the holy city. And as these pilgrims would travel along that way coming toward Jerusalem, they would sing what were called the Psalms of Ascent that come from the Scriptures in the book of Psalms. And they would also think of those Psalms that would be sung and used in the Passover. And that really informs the praise that they are going to give to the Lord as we move through this text. Ray Vanderlaan in his book Echoes of His Presence talks about this. He said, By coming from the east, Jesus was announcing that He was the Messiah. Everything that He was doing here, we see how the Scripture ties into it. And in coming from the east toward Jerusalem, He was fulfilling what was said about the Messiah. Excuse me. In the book of Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah the prophet wrote that in the desert prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And John the Baptist had announced his coming and he was that forerunner who would prepare the way for the Lord. 600 years earlier, the prophet Ezekiel had seen this vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple of Israel because of their rebellion, their sin. The glory of the Lord in this vision had gone from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple and then to the courtyard and the gate and out east over the Mount of Olives. The glory of the Lord had left the temple in Jerusalem. But Ezekiel prophesied of a day when that glory of the Lord would return to Jerusalem and come to His temple once again. And in chapter 43, verse 4, He said, The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Jesus was coming from the east into the temple area. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus performed some of His greatest miracles. In the city of Jericho, for example, as He was about to enter Jericho, there was a blind beggar who was seated by the road and he heard all the commotion and he asked, who is this that is coming? And they told him that it is Jesus, the son of David, the one who is coming from Nazareth. 
And he cried out to him and he said, Jesus, Son of David, would you heal me? And Jesus stopped and talked to Bartimaeus and asked him what it was that he wanted. And he said, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus opened the eyes of this man who was blind. To the Jewish people, the ability to open the eyes of the blind was something that only the Messiah could do. It was a miracle to them that was as great as raising the dead. It was a sign of the Messiah. And so many began to follow and join in this excitement and what they saw concerning Jesus. And then Jesus makes His way up through the wilderness area and He will stay in Bethany, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you remember that was at at Bethany where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And that had taken place just a short time earlier and now He is back there. And there were so many people that had come to place their faith in Jesus because of this astounding miracle that had taken place there. And now Jesus comes and He reclines with them. And Mary, the sister of Lazarus, takes this jar of expensive perfume this, probably her most precious possession. It was an item of great value and she broke it and she anointed Jesus' feet. And Jesus said that what she had done was something that was preparing Him for His burial. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to Him. And those who traveled with Him heard and saw these miracles and heard what He was saying And so you can imagine their excitement when they come to the city of Jerusalem. And as they come to the top of the Mount of Olives, this is the view that they see. If you can show this picture here. This is a modern day Jerusalem, but it gives you a feel of what it must have been like to look out at this panorama of the city and the Temple Mount area. Here where the Dome of the Rock is, the Temple would have stood. And shining with the, it was built of the purest white marble, gilded with gold. It would have gleamed in the sun. And when you come over the top of the Mount of Olives, you are about 400 feet above the city of Jerusalem. And you see this view of the whole city. And that's what Jesus and the disciples would have seen as they came over that incline. You can understand their excitement. And they couldn't contain themselves any longer. They began to shout these psalms of praise. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King. And on this occasion, Jesus did not silence them. Instead, what Jesus does, Luke tells us in this situation, is that He sent two disciples ahead of him to go and find this colt. Jesus begins to direct the events that are coming. And we see that. We see that not just here, but we will see it with the Passover when he tells them also to go and prepare this room and you're going to find it at such and such place and here's what's going to be done. You know, he is directing all of these events. Everything is under his sovereign control. And I think that that is one of the significant teaching points that comes out of this passage of Scripture. 
that this same Jesus who could calm the wind and the waves with the word or by his word could raise the dead or heal the blind, he's the same Jesus who knows and understands and cares about the events in our life. And when we know him as our Savior and Lord and we invite him to enter into our trials or our challenges or the affairs of our life, he does and he's there and he comes in all of his fullness and power. He is there to work in our life situations. All we need to do is ask and come before him and humbly lay our life or our circumstances at his feet. And whether we are dealing with financial setbacks or the loss of a job or an illness of a child or someone else in our family, God knows. And He cares and He has the power to work. And sometimes He delivers us from those situations. He takes us out and we rejoice in that. And other times in His plan, He takes us through those circumstances. And He gives us the grace to handle whatever trial that we may face. The disciples were learning something very significant about Jesus on this day. That we can trust in His sovereignty. And so the disciples, the two that were sent, went into the village. And they found everything just as Jesus had said. They found this colt that was tied up and they went to get it. And when they uh, were taking it, the owner said, What are you doing or why are you taking this? And they replied to him and they said that the Lord needs it. And he let it go. There was a term for that in Israel at the time. It was a term called angaria. And that term meant, or it was kind of a, a law or a practice at that time, that if a dignitary... Even a rabbi needed something that he could ask for the use of it and it would be given. Use of property or lodging or a beast of burden as in this case and it was to be given to them. And so here Jesus is asking for that privilege, that right if you will. But why a colt? Why this young donkey? Why this young beast of burden? Again, everything that Jesus was doing was in fulfillment of Scripture, and all of these things had spiritual significance. In the book of Zechariah, for example, in Zechariah 9.9, that prophet had written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout, daughter of Jerusalem, and see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. He is gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here Zechariah the prophet had talked about how the Messiah would come in that day. And Jesus comes fulfilling this symbolism. And I mean, a, a donkey was a beast of burden, but it was also a symbol of peace. It was something that went back to the time of David as David came toward Jerusalem. And here you have Jesus in fulfillment of Scripture as the son of David coming to the city of Jerusalem in peace. It shows the kind of king that Jesus would be. It shows his humility. He comes not again as this conquering king at this time, but he is humble. He's a servant. He is a Messiah who will lay down his life for the sins of the world. Now one day we know in Scripture he will come again. 
And on that day, the book of Revelation tells us that he is going to come on this mighty steed with all of the hosts of heaven with him. He will come as that conquering king. And every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him. But on this day, he came as this humble servant to bring peace to our relationship with God. And even concerning that, Jesus would say that no one would take his life from him. But he would lay it down of his own accord. He had the power to do that. He had the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And so Jesus himself does all of these things freely, willingly, as the Son of God. Can you trust him with the circumstances of your life? Yes, we can. And we can come and we can put our confidence and our hope in this Jesus who loves us and cares about us as well. The Scriptures call us not only to trust Him, but also they call us to worship Him, to worship His majesty. And we see that in the second half of this passage. In verse 37, again it says that when they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. I mean, you think about that. Here they came. They saw these uh, things being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And they, they were astounded by all that Jesus had done and they could not hold back their praise. And you know, for us too, when our worship is genuine, it flows from the heart. No one has to tell us to worship. When we see God work and we understand what He has done and we read about these events and we think about His love for us as our Savior, our praise just naturally overflows as it should. I mean, we say that kind of response all the time in sports, for example, when people freely cheer on the team that they are pulling for. If your team scores a touchdown, no one needs to tell you to cheer. Or if you've been watching some of the basketball tournament recently, as I have in the NCAA tournament, you know, and you're pulling for an underdog, when they win, it's pretty exciting. And there have been a lot of underdogs winning in this tournament. No one has to tell you to cheer or to clap your hands or to stand up at those kind of events. And on this day... When they came and they saw Jesus riding into the city, their hearts were filled with praise and wonder. Could it be? Is now the time when the Messiah is going to right all wrongs? Is now the time when the Messiah is going to come and establish His kingdom on earth? They brought this colt, an animal of peace. No one had ever ridden on it before. It was holy. It was perfect for a sacred use. They put Jesus on it. Did you notice that in the text, the way Luke says this? I think that they were so excited, they just picked him up and they put him on this cold. They were ready to see him ride into the city. And they laid their cloaks before him in honor, like we would give a red carpet treatment. They were laying their cloaks 
both on the colt and on the ground in front of him. And some began to cut down palm branches and they were excited and they were laying those on the ground and they were waving them in the air. The palm branch had a very symbolic meaning for Israel. It went back to the time of the Maccabeans when they revolted and overthrew their oppressors. And it symbolized Israel as a nation and their independence. And so here were those that were caught up in this messianic fever and they were taking these palm branches and they were thinking now is the time when Jesus is going to reign as king and he'll overthrow Rome and all of our oppressors. And they started shouting these words of praise. They worshipped him, calling out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? When you think of the announcement of Jesus' birth in Luke's gospel, and the angel said, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, good men. Here they are shouting those kinds of words of praise. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The time had come for Jesus to enter the city of Jerusalem and to take his place. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders heard what they were saying, they hated it. They hated it. They understood the symbolism and they understood what these disciples were saying about Jesus. And to be quite frank, they were afraid of what Rome would do if Rome heard these kind of cheers and accolades. They were afraid of what it would mean for them, for their position, and for the nation. And so they said to Jesus rather critically and harshly here, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to no longer say those things. Jesus replies and he says, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. All of creation would cry out that this is the Lord of glory who is coming into the city. What a sight it must have been. John in his gospel tells us that the Pharisees saw that this was getting them nowhere. That all their attempts to try and silence the disciples and silence Jesus were getting them nowhere. And so they began to plot his death. And how did Jesus feel as he entered into Jerusalem that day? You see his heart of compassion in verses 41. When he approached the city of Jerusalem and he saw that view as was up here on the screen. And he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. If only they would have seen. If only they would have understood and turned and come to Jesus in faith. He prophesied that the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
he knew, he saw this horrible siege that was going to come upon Jerusalem. When the Roman army would surround the city, when they would suffer greatly and die of this kind of famine and starvation within the gates of Jerusalem. And the time would come and the Roman armies would advance and literally destroy the city of Jerusalem and the people would be scattered all over the Roman Empire. In the year A.D. 70, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Roman army. Flavius Josephus wrote of those events. He said that Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand. And he wanted to do that to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications Roman prowess had dominated. But all the rest of the wall he wanted to be demolished so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. That was his wishes for the city of Jerusalem. The city was set afire. The gates were torn down. The walls were demolished except for some that were left that the Roman army used as part of their fortifications. The fire was so hot that concerning the temple itself, the gold that was in the temple ran down between the rocks and the stones. And not one stone was left upon another as the Romans took them apart and began to salvage the gold that was there. The destruction of Jerusalem was terrible. The Christians who were in the city and knew of these prophecies had left before that and began to be scattered throughout that Roman Empire as they would take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But for that city of Jerusalem, this horrible judgment had come. And Jesus wept over the city. He longed for the people to turn to him and to be saved. He longed for them, for their eyes to be opened, that they might see and know and understand the significance of these events and what was about to happen. Jesus still longs for that. When I look at a text like this, I think about the people that are pictured here. And in this text, we see three different responses to Jesus. There were those who believed in him. There were those who rejected him. And there were those who did not understand the events of what was happening in that time. Those who believed in him were the disciples and those who had seen his miracles and who followed him and began to understand. And even though they didn't know everything about what Jesus was going to do yet, they had come to believe that he was who he claimed to be, God's Son, the Savior of the world. And there were those who rejected him like the Pharisees and the high priests and those who wanted to put him to death and to silence him. They wanted no part of it. And then there were those like the crowd that was there, all of the others who had come into Jerusalem on that day that kind of were fickle. They just didn't understand. 
And so on Palm Sunday, they could get caught up in the emotion and the cheers and the shouts of those who were the faithful, and they could join in the praise. And yet a few days later, they could hear the other side shouting, Crucify Him! This man's an imposter. He deserves to die. And they could turn so quickly and be caught up in that. They just didn't understand who Jesus was. And there are people like that today in our world. There are those who believe in Him. There are those who reject Him and want nothing to do with Him. And there are those who just don't understand. And maybe it's because they've never taken the time to look. I would ask you this morning, in which camp are you? Which one of those three responses best describes you? Have you come to that point where you have placed your absolute confidence and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And worship Him and share in the joy of what He has done. Have you closed your heart and come to a conclusion that you don't think Jesus is who He really is? Or have you come to that point where you just simply have questions and you're not sure? I would invite you to once again take a look at what these writers of Scripture were saying about Jesus. They were willing to give their life for the truth of what they proclaimed. And when you look at the response of the people and when you look at the circumstances surrounding Jesus, I would ask you to consider the evidence and come and see who Jesus really is. If you're here today and you don't know Him as your Savior and Lord and you would like to, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And I want you to think about it this week and next Sunday when we come to Easter and the celebration of the resurrection, we're going to talk about that as well. But if you're here today and are willing to take that step, would you pray with me as we close this message in prayer? Father, I thank You for sending Jesus, Your Son, to be our Savior. And I want to humbly bow before you today. And I open my heart to you and I ask you to show yourself to me. I want you to come into my life to forgive my sins and to be my Savior and Lord. If you're willing to pray that prayer, Jesus will take you at your word. And he will come into your life and he will begin to work in you and change your heart and help you to grow in your relationship with Him. For those of us who know Him, we would look back on that event as the most significant decision we've ever made because it changed everything about the way we look at life. And Jesus, I thank You for the hope that You give, for the confidence You give. I thank You for the promise that we have of eternal life and of one day spending eternity with You in Your glory. Father, may we be witnesses this week to that truth, and may we pray and may we share the hope that we have with others. We ask it all in Jesus' name.